Welcome to the Women's Wellbeing Academy podcast, brought to you by the University of New South Wales, Sydney. This series explores the impact of COVID-19 on various aspects of women's health and wellbeing. Hello, I'm Professor Eileen Baldry, and you're about to listen to a specially curated episode of the Women's Wellbeing Academy podcast. Today, I'm excited to tell you that I'm in conversation with Associate Professor Sarah Cook to discuss the impact of COVID-19 on gender equity in development contexts. Dr. Cook is Director of the Institute for Global Development at UNSW. And prior to this current role, she led the UNICEF Office of Research. And prior to that was Director of the UN Research Institute for Social Development. Sarah has also worked at the Institute for Development Studies in the UK and with the Ford Foundation in China. Her research covers issues at the intersection of economic and social policy with a primary focus on China's development. And she has worked extensively on gender issues in China, on care work, labor force participation, and women's political participation. So we are in for a treat to discuss this uh, matter with Sarah. So thank you so much for joining me, Sarah. Look, first of all, uh, could we set the scene and the context for our exploration of the impact of COVID-19 on gender equity in development contexts. And I'm thinking here about the fact that we know that COVID-19 is having differential impacts on men and women and differential impacts in different contexts and gendered contexts. So what gender differentiation, differentiated impacts of COVID-19 are you seeing in development contexts? Thank you, Eileen, and it's a real pleasure to join you for this um, important discussion. Um, Let me start closer to home with some of the gendered impacts of COVID-19 that have been discussed in our context in Australia and the UK, rich economies in China, because I think in most cases, these will be magnified or intensified in low-income countries and contexts. And then I'll turn to some additional issues and impacts in low-income countries specifically, and whether due to pre-existing inequalities, whether due to the functioning of health systems and healthcare, or the capacity of states to respond, we may see some different or, or heightened impacts. So what are some of these apparently global or universal impacts from a gender perspective? I think first we have the widely cited statistic also discussed in the previous podcast in this series, um, that the vast majority of frontline healthcare workers are female. It's estimated at 70% globally, but more in some contexts. And this is an issue also in low-income contexts. And in addition, many other essential workers are female, and particularly in the wider social care domain. So to some extent, COVID-19 can be seen as a crisis of the care system generally. And I think Second, then, relatedly, this crisis is surfacing the often invisibilized or ignored work of care and social reproduction, including just meeting the daily needs of families and communities. This is obviously an issue of gendered social norms. These norms around care work persist even in the most egalitarian context, which means that most of it, the work is undertaken by women. It can be paid or unpaid. It can be in the home or the community or institutions. It's largely female. And as such, it's often therefore undervalued socially and underpaid in the market. 
And so we see in many circumstances globally, and including in, in low-income co contexts, that women are likely to take on the overwhelming additional care burden, including of childcare, homeschooling, where schools close, but also just the provisioning and feeding of family members in the home. And third, as we're hearing in this country and from around the world, and we have evidence from previous pandemics, economic crises, domestic violence, intimate partner violence increases in these circumstances. And even if we don't have all of you know, the emerging data, we don't know enough always about the drivers, it is a pressing issue. And this is whether victims are locked down with existing perpetrators or whether there are new pressures, economic pressures, et cetera, that emerge within households or relationships. I think those are probably the three big areas which we're hearing a lot about, which seem to be pretty global. There are some other issues which may be a bit less prominent, but, but are also there. Some are in respect of routine healthcare and what's considered elective and the extent to which this affects women differentially, particularly around reproductive health or access to if, for example, termination of pregnancies, as in the US in some states, deemed elective, even if there may be poses risk to life. For other crises, we know some more on the economic side, we know that it generally takes much longer for women to get back into the labor force or get back to pre-crisis levels of income after such a crisis. So I think there are some of these issues which will be longer term impacts, gender differentiated impacts of the economic and social crisis. And I think there's also a little bit of attention to the fact that women are not so much in decision-making roles in terms of responses to crisis. And that underrepresentation may also then affect how their issues are being dealt with, how gender differentiated impacts are being dealt with in this context. So I think those are some of the global issues. Just to, to summarise some of that, that there are differentiations across the globe in both rich and poorer contexts and countries in, in developing contexts that pertain to a greater or lesser extent across the globe. And one of the things I'd really like to ask you is, are we yet seeing any clear evidence around this that you're aware of? And, and as you go on now to talk about uh, development and international mm. context, maybe, you know, is there anything in particular that you've been seeing that's coming yeah. across? So, so yes, I think, um, thank you for that. In terms of Frontline health workers, I think, in under-resourced settings, obviously the things that we're hearing about here are likely to be more intensified and with higher risk. So less personal protective equipment, more basic conditions, but also with weak health systems, healthcare systems. For some, you know, women are at the front line of care where there is no access to, to healthcare systems. Um, they're default the family and community carers. And I think we're hearing more from the perspective of within the household already from people who are able to do some of this research. And, and what we're hearing about are the living conditions where we have households in urban areas, in low-income settings, living in informal settlements, which are highly overcrowded. There's very little ability, obviously, to socially isolate. There is a lack of basic hygiene and sanitation facilities. Women and children are often the ones that are responsible for 
getting access to water, collecting water, for example. And if they can't go out, then you don't have that capacity. Toilets may be shared by large numbers of people. So all these basic elements of prevention and protection are almost impossible in those contexts. And so this exacerbates some of the existing risks. Women's roles in these contexts, so these gendered social roles, they are responsible generally for the household, for cooking, for cleaning, for feeding, for sourcing food. And as large numbers of workers, migrant workers come back, there may be many more people in those contexts to take care of. So there's an intensification of work and workload, just the daily life and provisioning, let alone the additional health elements. And, and these are contexts where families are dependent often on very small amounts of income coming on a very regular daily, weekly basis. They can't stock up. They are dependent on local markets. Women's work is often as those market sellers and traders. So they're at the front line there and they may also be losing income. So I think all of these elements add up to the further use of women's time and the depletion of their physical and mental resources just to provide this, this care. And I think those elements are coming. There are organizations, global organizations, such as we got with the Women in Informal Economies, Globalizing and Organizing, there are other groups. And, and what I can do is put some links and resources attached to this podcast. But I think they're beginning to try and collect very quick data from their networks mm -hmm. to be able to see some of these changes in women's work, changes in women's time, the pressures on women, the absorption of more members into households and how those are being cared for. Um, I think another element which I'd like to emphasize is the relation to schooling and schools. And UNESCO estimates the number of children out of school globally. Of these in low-income countries, there's probably about 100 million girls, over 100 million girls, who are not in school. And for them, you know, when we see, we have evidence from previous crises, it's often the girls that do not go back to school after a crisis, particularly adolescent girls. We see in Sierra Leone during Ebola, for example, Claire Wenham and others have done some great research on, on past pandemics and an increase in teen pregnancy of up to 65% in that particular context. Much more likelihood of engaging in risky behavior, in transactional sex, in other behaviors that might lead to pregnancy expose girls to violence at the extreme increases in trafficking. You also tend to see in those contexts an increase in early marriage, child marriage, sometimes as a way to protect girls from risks, sometimes as a, as a forced marriage for financial economic reasons. So we've got the short-term gender impacts, but these are the behaviours now which will lead to long-term undermining of gender equity goals and the long-term disadvantage for those, that group, that cohort, and the intergenerational transmission of, of poverty or disadvantage over the life cycle. I think we are also seeing the evidence and there are people on the ground working on these domestic violence, trying to set up hotlines in, you know, across in parts of Africa. We're hearing some of the cases. So we know that this is a huge risk. And I think we also know there's usually very limited resources. It's not top of policymakers' responses often. So it takes a lot of advocacy and mobilization to try and create the safe spaces and address those issues. 
I think the other one I mentioned earlier, but these issues of maternal reproductive health and the general health system in such a crisis. Again, we know from previous pandemics that during Ebola, for example, in Sierra Leone, more women died of obstetric complications than of infectious disease. So, you know, there's these kind of side effects of women not seeking healthcare when they need it, of the healthcare facilities being overwhelmed, mean that we'll see much higher risks of maternal and infant and other forms of morbidity and mortality. And then, of course, there's the long-term impact of the interruptions to basic child immunization, et cetera, which will impact long-term child development, health, nutrition. And that obviously, again, impacts over the long-term on women as primary carers. And so I think these are some of the predictable effects based on evidence, particularly from past both health and economic social crises. And I think one of the issues perhaps to, to bear in mind in thinking about how this plays out for gender equity is that these are intersecting. So as women as workers, it's their economic role, it's their role as mothers, it's their role as carers, it's all of these things that reinforce each other, which reverberate into the future and reverberate across generations in terms of the inequalities or the disadvantage women face. There are just so many issues in there, Sarah, and you did mention in passing um, gender equity goals and the effect this could have on it. And most people are aware of the sustainable development goals in general and that they frame the current international development agenda to a large degree, not entirely, but nevertheless, you know, they're very important. And the SDGs, of course, include a specific goal, number five, which is uh, gender equity. But as you just pointed out, um, gender inequalities are addressed in other goals. They intersect and they synergistically work together. But at the end of 2019, where were we in goal number five, gender equity, in the development context? Mm. And then leveraging off that, what do you think the impact might be mm. of COVID-19 on this ongoing, the SDG5 work, for example? Yeah, thank you. Um, Obviously, SDG 5 is specifically on achieving gender equality and empowering all women and girls. And the targets within that are about ending discrimination, eliminating violence against girls and women, including um, trafficking and sexual exploitation, harmful practices, including in that child early and forced marriage, recognising and valuing unpaid care and domestic work, equal rights to economic resources and, and some other elements around legislation and policy. And I think if we, so going to the question about the end of 2019, uh, that's a difficult question to generalize about. Obviously we're into a five year period. So this year we would have been seeing a lot of the first five year review. This year also is the 25th year of the Beijing Platform of Action which I think is also a key landmark in sort of thinking about women's rights and gender equity. And so I think if we looked at the actual data, we would see so much variation across country and across these different goals. Um, I think if we look over the longer term through the period of the Millennium Development Goals, we've seen some general progress on quite a lot of goals, child marriage. We've seen sort of a decline in child marriage, some as part of reduction of poverty, some improvement in access to resources, education. We've seen a big improvement through social protection systems of access to incomes in some parts of the world. 
We've seen greater recognition, so bringing care on and unpaid work onto the agenda, even if we don't see the shifts in social norms, they take place very slowly. And we've seen a big push to get more data on things like violence, which we've just, you know, in some cases, we just don't have enough data to really track how things are changing. And so I think we'll see if we looked globally, we would see some improvements and some fallback and, and variable change. As I've mentioned in all of those targets, many of those targets are the things that I just mentioned are going to be impacted by COVID. The violence issues, the child and early marriage, the issue of the increased burden of unpaid and social care reproductive work, and possibly then the barriers that those things create to women's access to economic resources. Should also mention in from evidence of, of crises where there are strong economic impacts on households, coping strategies may also include drawing down on assets and often it's women's assets that are more expendable short term, smaller jewelry, you know, things like that. So again, the economic resources comes into that. And then, of course, as you mentioned, there's the interaction with other goals. And I think a lot of these goals of improvement in women's rights, gender equity, come through the achievements in other areas. And if we see increase in poverty as a result of COVID, if we see a decline in food security, if we see pressures on health systems and access to healthcare, and if we see girls dropping out of school, then, of course, that's going to, in turn, set back some of the progress towards gender equity. So I think by being aware of these issues, by having the goals there, by having a focus on them, by drawing attention to issues of the data that we need, the research we need to know what's happening, at least we're in a better position to say these are likely impacts and we need to try and act on them to avoid the consequences we know would happen without intervention. So I think that's where we might be in a slightly different place to try and avoid the declines being as negative as they might otherwise have been. Yes, yeah, so thank you. That's a, a really sort of helpful, not call to arms or action, but uh, really a call to keep it in front of people's minds. And I want to follow up with a, a couple of questions. But the first one around that, the first one is you already mentioned Ebola and, uh, and we know there have been other pandemics in the 21st yeah. century already, Zika, SARS. And we also know there have been other very serious disasters yeah. like the earthquakes in Nepal and the tsunami and the effects of these, uh, yes, we have really strong evidence that they can lead to the kinds of things that you've just mentioned, particularly around girls, perhaps, but women and girls and negative consequences. So clearly we could learn things from all of those, those disasters and the previous um, epidemics. Do you think that governments, organisations, one, have learned things from those and also have they applied what they've learned so that say this epidemic or this pandemic you know is being somewhat better you know my perception and maybe this is the the slightly positive side of this question and it may be just my perception but i think that gender issues have been brought up earlier and with more evidence to back up the arguments for action in the crisis so earlier than than possibly in in previous crises and i think this is the result of 
continued, the building up of evidence, the research, the recognition, often by feminist researchers and activists in previous crises, that, you know, these things are being ignored. And so I think, you know, during Ebola, Zika was obviously much more directly focused on on women's and reproductive health and the transmission to children. To, to babies. So, you know, I think there's, there has been a growing awareness and there is a growing body of knowledge and evidence. And there's, I think, you know, again, I can provide some of the links to some of the very informed webinars, podcasts by, there's one, the International Association for Feminist Economists, of which I'm very involved in. The There's been others, the Center for Global Development did an excellent one. And these are really based on people who've been looking at the evidence, who are trying to pull that evidence together now so that it's here for, for the current crisis. But I think they would also say at the very beginning, gender was not on the agenda. It's not the policymakers. It's not the first responders that are bringing it up. It needs to be put onto the agenda by the activists, the feminist researchers, the others who are engaged in this space. And so I don't think it's translating necessarily into sufficient visibility or prioritization in terms of policy response. That also might link to the point I made earlier that women are not necessarily part of decision-making structures and processes, or they're not sufficiently represented within them. And so clearly, you know, I think there is more action, there is more evidence, there is more to go on, but I think we, we need to find ways to get it better translated into action. In terms of lessons that I think have been from previous crises, and these are probably more from what I'm better familiar with, the, the sort of economic and financial crises and the social inconsequences of them, I think there are a couple of areas where there has been some systems change over the last two to three decades, which maybe does help in better preparing in general, but with implications for women also. Um, I think one issue has been social protection. So post the Asia financial crisis, the late 90s, or even before that in, in Latin America, and then through the financial crisis, 2008 global financial crisis, we've seen a remarkable expansion of basic social safety net, social assistance, social protection programs in low-income countries. And I think one of the things that that has created is those mainly in the form of cash transfers often do go to women. And it also has created an administrative system, a structure, a system in which benefits can be scaled up or scaled out to more people in the event of crisis. Obviously, that depends on those governments having resources available to do so. And, and in some cases, they'll work better than others. But I think that is one safety net which is in place now which has really evolved over the last decade or so in particular. I think where we haven't done enough, particularly is on universal health care and war health coverage. And that was something that sort of faded off the agenda a bit globally and came back. So September 2019, last year, was the big UN meeting and a high-level political declaration on universal health coverage to really push that out. And of course, the global pandemic arrived just in time to sort of both show that this was something that should have been in place before and hopefully to to say it needs to be put in place now and following from this um, crisis because clearly that's an opportunity that's somewhat missed. Another opportunity, I mean obviously the major constraint on many of these things is finance and from the during the global financial crisis in 2008 you know there was a lot of discussion around 
how the global community could create a social fund, a global social fund, whether through financial transaction taxes or other innovative financial mechanisms. And I think, again, we miss those opportunities. And the challenge now, I think, is that, you know, it is a global crisis, whether we're talking about gender equity or the differentiated impacts, it is going to have to be addressed on some level at a global level. And yet we're in a moment where we have much less trust in global institutions and the multilateral system than in the past. So I think we have learned some lessons from the past, but I think we don't have the same degree of global commitment and solidarity to addressing them in a global way that we might have had in the past. And that could be a challenge to moving forward. Mm. I'd just like to sort of uh, wrap up with asking you to just reflect a little further on what you've just said. So, you know, some absolutely key things that would help transform gender equity, like universal health care, better social uh, support and security and economic security, and that we can see that there have been some countries that have been working more towards that. But what is the vehicle if, as you said, you know, trust in the UN, for example, seems to be very varied across the globe? Trust in governments uh, in many places is uh, at a very low ebb. What do you think are the best ways for us to carry these forward, particularly in development contexts mm. where there is very little in the way of structural capacity to do these things? You know, I think there are many countries that are responding, you know, in different ways and within their resources and limits to, to crises in different ways. And I think we need to learn from them what works. But we obviously need to keep pressure on our own governments in terms of development financing and assistance and, and commitments, the Sustainable Development Goals and other global commitments. So I think that those will be actions that politically as advocates as well as as researchers and building up evidence we need to keep on the agenda. I think data does help, data and research and evidence really does help in these contexts and so you know really making sure that we are trying to collect gender disaggregated data or data on these key issues to, to ensure that the recognition is there and I also think there are ways in which we'll be able to link the issues that we're seeing surfacing in our own, in rich countries, in countries with all the resources to cope, so that we can rethink some of the prioritization of issues. And I think here, care and the structural place, you know, it's not just about what women do at home, etc. It's about the structural place of care in the economy, which has been made visible. And, and so we know that we can see our economy today is dependent on the ability to care or to socially re reproduce itself. That there's a, an interesting conversation in this lockdown about the need to you know, nurture or care for ourselves as individuals as we're all in these, this strange position. And can we take the, that recognition to the lives of those in, in much more intense and harder circumstances whose daily lives are really characterized by such an intense degree of caring for others or their communities, that it's at the cost of depletion of their own physical and mental resources. And this is the reality of women's lives in many parts of the world. So I think if we can recognize and value this unpaid and unrecognized and largely feminized work, it's, it's a real opportunity, I think, also to 
then say we need to structure our economy differently. We need to actually value those care jobs. We need to create better care work. And those care worker jobs that women could be doing, which helps their economic prospects, it helps their livelihoods, it helps balance the domestic market work, etc. And those are jobs that could be created in low-income contexts and, and, and help improve gender equality. And I think that's part of rethinking how care fits into the economy more generally. I think I've already mentioned, I think similarly with universal healthcare or health systems and access to quality healthcare, this is a global issue now. You know, viruses don't respect borders, other infectious diseases will come. Can we make the case out of this that really we have to globally invest in, in these kind of basic public goods and services as global public goods that benefit us as well as low-income communities. Um, so I think both of those are areas where, you know, maybe there's significant structural shifts that could happen. I think the final one I would point to, which is maybe more optimistic and an opportunity that I think needs to be grasped but, but will need to be struggled over much more, is, is about linking, making the links with seeing between the environmental sustainability, climate issues, and social and care work. And I think the, these are very, you know, and the, the Sustainable Development Goals tried to see these in, in its most transformative way. It was about the interconnectedness between these different goals and the way in which our valuation of natural resources and our valuation of this social reproductive role are undervalued relative to the economic, in, in our economic model. And they come under extreme pressure in, the, in our economic model. So how do we recover from the depletion of women in terms of this care role? How do we recover from the depletion of the natural environment? How do we create an economic system that is much more sustainable across those domains? And, and then we get to thinking, I think, about gender equity, not as a zero-sum game, that it's about sharing resources between men and women or redistributing resources between women, men and women, but it's much more fundamental rethinking of the nature of the whole system, what we measure, what we value, how we do that in order to find a more sustainable balance. So that's my bigger optimistic um, challenge to, to finish on, because I think ultimately until we restructure some of these relationships, gender equity, we can make marginal improvements. And obviously we do need to make those marginal improvements quickly and immediately, but we also need to change some of the structures within which women and all of us are embedded and which perpetuate and reproduce those inequalities. Thank you, Sarah. Look, and particularly for that very positive challenge for everyone in the world, uh, we will try and send it out to every single leader <laughs> and, and uh, bring them that challenge. Look, that was just a, a fascinating and in many ways uh, uplifting discussion because there are so many potential things to come out of this if we can do uh, the right work. And so thank you for joining me, Sarah, in our Women's Wellbeing Academy discussion of the impact of COVID-19 on the health and well-being of women in development. And, and thank you so much, everyone who listened to this. Uh, thank you for joining us today. more information about this podcast, our guests and upcoming episodes, please visit the UNSW Equity, Diversity and Inclusion website.